Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1011 with Kevin Barrett and Drew Shank. The business plan's all fiction until you open the doors, right? Once you open the doors, then you know, you can get a feel for it. It didn't take long, I don't think, for either one of us to realize like, all right, this is good. It's a good product. This is built to last. People like this. We can do this. This is going to, I mean, that happened in the first four weeks, I think. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60-day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone fred langley ceo of restaurant systems pro will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the restaurant system pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants fred will teach you recipe costing cards guidance in your books for accounting cash control sales forecasting checklist budgeting for the entire year scheduling for profit it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Restaurants Unstoppable Network is coming back, and we are stronger than ever before. So, During the pandemic, I started the network as a way to evolve and adapt. And when things opened back up, I was on the road again. That is my happy place. But there is value in the network. But I knew I couldn't be on the road and do the network at the same time. So I recruited Callan Miola to be our community manager. And she is killing it. She is organizing things like I could never have done on my own. And we are getting after it. So if you want to be a part of the conversation, the podcast is the leading edge. We're out there. We're turning over rocks. We're finding leads. The network is where we pull back the layers. We dive deep. We connect our listeners to the tools, services, and organizations that are being referred to us organically. If you want to be in the network, act now because the first 50 people to sign up will get a free t-shirt head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is find the link or the banner in the show notes and you will get a 30-day trial to get into the network get a free shirt and if you opt into the one-year plan we will throw in a hat and a mug thank you in advance with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guests owners of dram and draft and creators of kolatka did i say it right yes you did awesome Kevin Barrett and Drew Shank, a.k.a. The Barman, are you two feeling unstoppable today? Unstoppable. Yeah. I feel like an unstoppable dynamo. I, I'm feeling unstoppable. After just doing a little bit of research, you guys both have very extensive careers. And what you've done in the past year and a half is crazy. You've scaled from one location to like, what now? Almost seven? From two to seven. Two to seven. But the, yeah. oh, this, the second one was like 10 years after, 2018? Uh, 2016 was Dram and Draft Raleigh, and then uh, 2018 was Dram and Draft Greensboro. That's right. That's and then right. 
there was something big that but happened still. in 2020 that I can't remember that right. slowed Let's us down it. for it's a minute. better that you forgot about it. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> exactly. uh, I do want to make sure we acknowledge Dave Nitzel and Dave Domzowski for calling Kevin and Drew out because, you know, we do try to find our future guests through our current guests, referrals and stuff like that. I also want to say thank you to John Sealbinder for letting us use the merchant to record these interviews. If you guys are ready, I'm ready. Let's get that, that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got? for us drew what's yours i thought about it just because i said what do i and by mantra me what do you say to yourself and what do you say to other people that kind of says it yeah it could be like a like a core value in your business a, a, a saying that echoes throughout your walls that's near to your culture or just a quote uh for me i have a couple little little tiny ones like like uh activity breeds productivity and i say it to myself a lot and then i'll say it to somebody else when they're like well i'm going to do this i don't know if it's going to work or i'm going to try this Activity breeds, breeds productivity, and productivity breeds success. So it's kind of like just to get going and do it. Activity breeds productivity. And what was the second half of that? Productivity breeds success. I love it. Because you can't – success doesn't just drop in your lap. You actually have to get out there and make stuff happen because it will happen to somebody else that's trying to make it happen if, yes. if you don't get on top of it. Yes. Kevin, did you want to add to that? Um. I think, I don't know if I'm doing it right, but I, I know I've said this so many times that people are saying it back to me now. My, kind of throughout the business, my mantra is the, it's not the general with the biggest army that wins, it's the general with the most options. Mm. So that's kind of like our, when we're making choices or people are making choices, you know, independent of Drew and I, when we're not around to, to make the choices, that's kind of the guiding light, you know? Give so, us the choice that, that allows us options. So is it giving your, your team the freedom to make choices? Is that oh, the, absolutely. Is that yeah. the, the, the message? Yeah, I think with, uh, yes, and the, the overarching um, kind of theme to making those choices, don't box yourself in. You know, you, you're, you have the ability to make the choice, but make the choice that leaves some options. And I think a lot of that comes post-COVID, where we didn't have a lot of choices. Right. Coming out of that, you know, options are, are very valuable. Right, right. Great way to get this thing started. We do have a lot to cover. You guys both have lifetime careers. Well, you you took a break for real estate at one point, right? Just a small. How did you know that? I did a little just bit of a small research. One. A little bit of. I give myself an hour for every interview just to get a timeline. So, to, 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 but I that's all I get. Sometimes I don't even get an hour. Um, who wants to go first, Drew? Do you want to go first? I want to add one. Uh, mantra for Kevin okay. that he has said, which you know is more to the business because mine was more of a personal one. One that he said a long time ago, and it's actually become kind of a like go to that when you make a decision. You know, we're a neighborhood bar first, so in in our industry, there was a lot of things happening within the cocktail uh, culture. And Kevin was very when we started this, he was like. But we've got to be a neighborhood bar first. Yeah, we take care of our guests. Things got a little pretentious. Yeah, <laughs> and we want to we want to take care of the guests as if they're going to be regulars. And right. if they're from out of town, fine. You just experienced our neighborhood bar, right? You know, and the last thing you want to do is make people feel uncomfortable in your space or less than. Uh, you're, you're there to celebrate them, to lift them up, to make sure they leave feeling good. And if they, that's right, and they feel like, if they feel stupid when they leave because they're like, oh, I didn't even know the names of these drinks, or you made me look bad in front of my friends because I didn't I don't drink these fancy drinks like. It's, a, it's educational, right? That's yeah. right. And you're That's there right. to say yes to the guests. Yes. You're not there to say no to them, I, although sometimes we have to. You know, the job is to say yes. Yeah. So, Drew, take us back. Where does it make sense to start sharing your story? We're going to do a fast-forward version. Let's do a real fast, uh, Reader's Digest version even. Um, so 
I started in the restaurant industry early at, at 12, breaking down boxes in a meat market outside Philadelphia, moved to West Virginia, did in the 14 to 16, that whole McDonald's, uh, Charlie Daniels tacos, you know, worked a couple uh, restaurant jobs, um, and then stopped, became a river guy, joined the guard, went to OCS, got my commission, and thought I was going to come down here and just hit it big because there was cranes all over the place, and I'm coming There's from West more Virginia. more now. <laughs> I know. I, I, I thought it was growing then. This would have been yeah. 89, and got married, and um, went to work for Applebee's, and it's, it's a local... The Olanders owned, um, I think it was Kin Restaurants, which had a whole bunch of Burger Kings, and then they had more, M-O-R, which had a whole bunch of Applebee's. And that was a great experience because in that, you know, corporate, yeah. here's your training manual, here's the way we do it. We actually were in a training store, and there was a guy named Frank McNally that was in charge of the training store. He's actually the one that got me to interview with Applebee's. What year is this? This would have been right there at 90. 90. Because I yeah. saw you were with uh, uh, Remington Grill in 93. That's right. That was my first restaurant. So Partner, right? I owned it. Oh, yeah, you owned it. It was it. me. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. me. The, the other, just like with you know the other owners, the other were minority investors. Where was Applebee's in 1990? Like, where were they in their, in their growth? Because that's uh, early for them, isn't it? Uh, there was, yes. I guess there was only like five or six in the state, but it went while you know, they were opening. They were a machine. You know, they were opening them. Um, and I don't know. I think they they may have bought Apple South. They may own even more now, or maybe they sold Apple South. I don't know. But the and and M- Michael Olander Jr. is still in our market, investing in restaurants and doing uh, uh, real estate restaurant deals and all that. So it's kind of neat to see we all kind of, you know. And there's other bar owners in town that were once with Applebee's. Right. I and mean, that's fun. These organizations that are like the big, like I don't know, the ones that kind of get the bad names today, like, as far as being too big or whatever. Um, I don't know where you fall politically, but uh, they most of these giant companies really started off as amazing, small, intimate, really well-run organizations. Uh, so, where was Applebee's then, as far as a culture and a business? It was it was very corporate, you know. Which again, I was only there huh? about a year. Well, five locations, but no, they had hundreds. It was five in this market. Oh, so they, yeah, I don't know the, the story behind Applebee's. Were they around for a while in the 90s? Burger King guys out of Atlanta? Okay. Um, and they went into it knowing this is okay. a big corporation. So it is not one of your examples of a mom and pop that got, got no, this was a, this was a big corporate guys starting a big corporate neighborhood bar concept, which again, so they're already greased up, ready to go, uh, knowing exactly what they had to do and just brought those. And they already had in. a built in guys like the Olanders that owned multiple Burger Kings that knew how to be franchisees. Cause being a franchisee is not you know necessarily easy either. No. Um, and they already knew that. So it was great. Uh, but I was only there a year, year and a half. And um, I met a guy, Chris Mobley, and he and I started a restaurant equipment company. And we were so young and so dumb. And we got business cards made, Capital Food Equipment, Inc. And we weren't even incorporated. We didn't know anything. And <laughs> we started picking up lines and selling stuff. And we did very well. And I opened Remington Grill, my first restaurant, April 1992. It's was it the open. goal to go work for a corporation and to learn to go open your first place? Was that like, was there strategy behind I would love this? to say I was that smart. No, it was a goal to, to get $395 a week. And it was like, wow, I'm making $19,000 a year. I have hit it. I have arrived in Raleigh. Man, things have changed <laughs> since the early 90s, huh? Uh, so 
what were like was this a pivotal point for you in your career? Like would you say you grew as a, like a like a professional, quote unquote, during the, this time? The pivotal thing, the, the tipping point for me was we did the restaurant equipment company and we were the first to because we weren't draftsmen, we were the first to use CAD and we had hired actually an Applebee's um uh, server that was in engineering school at NC State and he did our CADs and the health department loved it and the lady at the time was Peggy Montabano and she handed my business card out to everybody that was coming to town to open a restaurant and we you know back then we sold like 800,000 our first full year in business in restaurant equipment it was unheard of we were we took the market by storm I was designing restaurants wasn't really qualified to but I learned a lot and was I designed probably all the really good ones that came, Margo's, all these big ones, Newton Southwest, all these restaurants that were coming to town. I designed them and sold them the equipment. And uh, that was the tipping point financially to be, oh, you're making $19,000 a year. Now you're going to go open a restaurant as a side project, which, by the way, I don't recommend. Right. <laughs> Um, that so was my it. dad's plan when he opened a restaurant. He was a, a correctional officer in Boston, at, like running a jail. And he's like, I'm going to open a restaurant on the side, work the night shift, come home, open at 6 a.m., breakfast and lunch, wow. and go sleep for six hours. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize that until I interviewed him recently. I had them be episode 1000. For reference, you're 1011. Um, but I wanted to share the origin story. But that, I didn't even know that. Like it's, but I agree. That's not good. Not a smart business <laughs> You need to plan. find some balance for sure. Yeah. Uh, so where would you say you evolved the most? Was it, was it in Remington's owning your first place and kind of like really pushing, pushing the envelope? You start learning a lot. I was, what, 26 at that point and, you know, owned a restaurant. I'm, I'm in there in sandals and shorts and a, and a Remington Grill T-shirt every day working the grill and at the same time managing people many times uh, they're older than I am and more experienced than I am. So you just start learning. You learn to deal with landlords and all that. And, it, yeah, it was a, it was, that was, you know, trial by fire learning. And that helped. And a lot of those lessons are still with me. And that restaurant, to my uh, uh, pride, is still open. Wow. It's 30 years later. So and it's sold. still open. I sold it in 96. And um, those guys, the guys that bought it still have it. And um, that was – you went from – Remington's the real estate for a short period. Was it how many years were you doing the real estate? So I did real estate for just about 10 years. I, um, I, I sold Remington Grill and I was then, you know, wealthy. I'm rolling my eyes at you can't because anyway, it's not, not how it works out. I got a couple hundred grand when I was, you know, 28. That sounds like a lot of money. Yeah. And I was going to go sell real estate. I realized the IRS wanted part of that money and, you know, money is not what it looks like. Um, anyway, long story short, went into real estate, did, did fairly well until 08 and then I uh, got wiped out. So I was, I was, everything I'd ever made was gone. And um, I said, well, baby, we're going back into restaurant business. And my wife did not want me to because she knows how hard I work in the restaurant business. And I said, well, okay, then I'm gonna, we're going to have to sell the house. And uh, she goes, go, go back in the restaurant <laughs> business, get your ass to work. <laughs> so uh, I did um, um, Rally Point Sport Grill in Cary, which is still open. And when Kevin and I did the second dram, we so- I sold it uh, to, to work full time uh, with Kevin. And uh, that was that's the rest is uh, probably more history. So yeah, that's where that's caught when you up. guys start to intercept. So before we transition over to Kevin, I'm curious where where would you say you evolved the most, or like take us to like maybe Remington's where like you just fell hard on your face. Like one lesson that if you knew now after your success with the Dram and all the other concepts that you've worked with, 
that it all starts with the lease and the lease negotiation. And even with Remington Grill, I had been designed, I designed the menu to go in a 1,500 square foot space. And I don't know if you remember Trax record stores, but then they wanted that whole end of the building. So they moved me out into a 4,200 square foot space and I allowed the landlord to do that. It actually all worked out. Like I say, this place is still open, but I'm doing $3.95 burgers. And, and that includes your fries, fresh cut fries, which at the time was you know, not yeah. everybody was doing. And, and your burger was cooked to order. And it was this kind of really like it was meant to be much smaller. And here I am paying $8,000 a month rent in 1992. Wow. And it was more money than I was making, you know, by far. And so it was um, I, we've learned I've learned, you know, you don't let the landlords push you around when you get a good enough reputation. It's nice. Cause you can go in and say, this is fair and let's do this. Cause it's fair. And this is, you know, and then, cause if you don't set that up, right. If the, if the lease isn't right, if it's too short, a lot of people want a five year lease. We only do 10 and 10. Um, so that we have 20 years in front of us. We yeah. don't, you know, we might not get rolling for How a couple of years. Any clue as to what is fair when you're first getting started? Like that, I feel like that is such a, for a new restaurant tour, that is such a strange subject. Like, what what is a good deal when it comes to rent? Well, uh, you, you've got you know the base rent. You know what they're trying to get. They've got to make money on their building. I mean, there's you don't want to be in a place that isn't making money. But then you've got to convince them they don't want tenants in there that aren't making money. So let's get this where it needs to be. Yeah. And and luckily we're we're now at the point, and we're not we're we're not doing any more that we know of right this minute. Um, but now we have people coming to us. So it's, it's a different negotiation when they say, can we fly you into town? We're going to put you up, take you to dinner. We want to look at this project. And that's a different conversation than calling the sign out front and getting a real estate agent. We're, right. We don't even deal with the real estate agents. We deal with uh, the developer themselves. Got it. And I thought, I, seeing that you had that real estate experience, I was like, that's smart in the restaurant industry. Just understanding real estate in that, that whole industry in itself I think is such gives you such a leg up because like you the point like your rent whatever your your land like whether you're renting or buying like just understanding that market and what a good deal is can make or break you. It, it helped us. I mean, I, I won't lie. It, it with our first uh, dram, the whole reason we got the deal and everybody wanted a deal there was because we were able to structure the real estate end of it in a way that the owner of the property was willing to do it and. That's what got us going because we couldn't have gotten that location. It sat empty for seven years, and we structured a deal that worked for us and for him. And you know that that's how that's how we were able to do that location. Got it. Was the real estate? All right, Kevin, it's your turn. And thank you, Drew, for giving us an idea of what was going on before you guys linked up. So I know you started in Philadelphia, found yourself in Wilmington, and then you found yourself in Raleigh. But you've been working in hospitality since. I think I saw 13 years old. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. So I, I was like, I'm not going to lie. When I first sat down, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to unpackage these two dudes and their careers in a short period of time. But Drew did it surprisingly well. No pressure. All right. Well, mine's, <laughs> mine's a bit shorter than Drew's. Uh, a number of decades ago, I was born. I was born a barman. I'm a barman today. End of story. <laughs> but you you had some growth in there, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think... Um, it's funny that you know the 13, 13 year old story. It's amazing uh, what Google can tell you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm getting a little worried about what else is out there about me. Uh, I started as a dishwasher when I was thirteen, and um, 
you know, I remember at the end of the night getting paid 30 bucks or 40 bucks, you know, $5 an hour under the table. Yeah. And, um, being dirty and, and worn out at the end of the night and thinking, yeah, this is the life for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, you know, went up from there, um, little bit of back of the house but mostly moved to front of the house because i think i just saw more opportunity there I was a bus boy then a server then a server then a bartender and once i was a bartender i was like this is where i when did that happen for you uh probably happened somewhere well somewhere between 18 and 21 was the transition and it was a long transition because i moved around a lot when i was younger there's a couple family? spots. No, uh, I mean, uh, from like 17 to probably 28, I moved a lot. So okay. uh, for school, right? I went out to uh, Western Washington for college. Uh, and every time you move to a new city and you want a bartending job, you have to prove yourself right. or someone has to die. And, you know, like people are entrenched in these right. jobs and you're nobody. And I kept going from you know, a city that I'd been at for a year or a couple of years or a few years to a new city saying, Hey, I'm a bartender. I used to be somebody right yeah. in my town. No, like me, people, people know me in the town that I, I've I come had from, stories where people are like, I just convinced them that I knew what I was doing. I just, I sold myself real well, but I had no clue, but that wasn't you. No, no, but I, I trust me. I would oversell myself as, <laughs> as much as I had to, to get a, a job. I remember, um, well, I'm skipping ahead a bit, but I, I you know, I think in high school, a, a brief, uh, a brief break from the service industry. I opened a lawn mowing and landscaping company with a friend of mine when we were 17. In high school, yeah, That's we were entrepreneurs, definitely. Um, and that lasted a couple seasons. That was great, a lot of fun back then. And then uh, going to school and working, I, I did that for a while. Again, back in the service industry. Um, and then I guess, oh man, it's hard to remember all of this now. I think I was down in Wilmington going to school, working as a as a, a bar back. And I was young. I think I was nineteen then. Then I went out to Washington to finish school. Worked in restaurants as a server mostly. A little bit of fine dining. A little bit of everything out there. Moved back to Wilmington. Was into uh, the service industry again, mostly as a server. Opened a wine shop. What was that? I saw that, and I was really curious about that because I know you guys are really big into like just sourcing high quality products. And that, yes, yeah, yeah so. everything. Yeah, uh, and Dram and Draft. We don't focus on wine, but we both love wine, so we have a small but interesting wine list. Yeah, and wine was my first love it's not before about liquor. Qu- quantity. It's about quality. Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, if you come in there and you're not drinking whiskey or a cocktail. And you want a glass of wine, you shouldn't expect a library uh, of, of wine, but you should expect some interesting options, right? Yeah, good diversity, quality. Stored at the yeah. right temperature, served at the right temperature right. in the right glass. Um, but the wine shop, I think, was 2003. Let's go, no, 2005. 2005, I was there for a couple of years with a, a partner. I saw the top of that mountain, and I wanted to climb a bigger mountain. You know, I think what that's was the vision I, you had. I I was just looking at what we were doing, and, and the wine business is real tough. It, the, the markup is low. You're competing with grocery stores that have an even lower markup and get it at a better price. Um, I mean, I was looking at Costco that was selling bottles of wine cheaper than what I was buying them for at wholesale. So it's a tough business. And uh, 
some people do it really, really well, but it has to be your goal, your, your life. Um, and I wanted to do something a little different, a little bigger. And again, I think that we did a wine tastings every Thursday night at my wine shop. And that was my favorite day because I was behind the bar pouring samples for everybody playing the role of bartender. Yeah. So I think I really wanted to get back to that and, uh, getting out from the wine shop. I sold it to my business partner and then moved to Raleigh. I was also moving to Raleigh. So I think the, um, when I hear boutique wine shop, I'm thinking like what you're paying for, why you're paying the marked up prices is because you're really paying for the relationship with the person that owns that place who knows their wine. So like if you're, and that's why you pay more because you go, you can't go to the grocery store and have a conversation about wine with the 17 year old kid stocking the shelf. You know, that's a good but, point. Well, yeah, but when you go to a, like a boutique store, like that person is usually passionate about the mm-hmm. product, and they can educate you. They can say, "You got to try this." Like, what's for dinner? Mm-hmm. Okay, try this bottle. And like, I think that's what you pay for when you go to a boutique store like that. But you're also, from your perspective, you're you're probably like getting this huge education in wine. I would imagine. Absolutely. Experience. Yeah. I I would say when I opened that shop, I thought I knew about wine. Right. While I had that shop, I learned about wine. I learned a lot real I bet. fast. I bet. Um, um, any advice on partnerships that you or ex- things you learned from partnerships in that first partnership? Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, a partnership is sometimes Drew and I joke about it. It's, it's like you get more entrenched than a marriage sometimes. So I think choose your partner. Well, I think, uh, have most things written out and agreed upon ahead of time. Um, uh, because inevitably there's going to be problems. There's going to be disagreements, I think that fortunately for Drew and I, most of our disagreements are healthy disagreements, right? And um, usually we come to some sort of uh, compromise or, or decision. Um, but, I, you know, choose a good partner. Choose someone you can vibe with. So choose somebody that you can be friends with also, right. right? I think that's important because even after we disagree, we can go out and get a couple cocktails together and water off a duck's back you know we're more than a couple <laughs> <laughs> well a couple things uh, i just want to surface one it doesn't it doesn't sound like you had a, a, a shared vision with your previous business partner you wanted different things yes that's that's yes very very good so i picked up on that um you said something else uh healthy disagreements what's a healthy disagreement uh, you know there's plenty of small things where we could talk about it and we don't agree on it. And I think oftentimes the conclusion is, well, this is my feedback. I don't feel strongly about it, but this is what I think. Go, you know, do what you think is yeah, right. Candid. And if, yeah, if I, if I, if we're talking about something, I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. This is what I think. It's not what you think, but I don't, I don't, I could go either way. We'll do what you, what you think, you know, let's try that out. And I think that, um, most of the things that we're deciding unless it's something super pivotal that that is you know that doesn't give us options after we make that decision that one might be a, a we might draw that out and and beat it up a while but most of the decisions we can make that decision and we can we have the the option to pivot afterwards so i think that that's a lot of our decisions the the hard ones i think we're, there's a drawn out a little bit more and then we finally come to a conclusion and that's really more of a compromise that's not the i don't feel that strongly about it do whatever that's like we're going to meet in the middle somewhere here. Yeah. There's also pretty good divisions of labor, right? Not of labor, but of areas of expertise. So, sure. you know, so that, that helps a lot because then it becomes anything you, you, you don't agree on becomes the small little points up here 
um, because if it's you, you know if you were going into a cocktail bar and both partners feel very strongly about the way a cocktail should be made, I think you'd be in a I, 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 don't, I don't think it would work. Um, so you know I don't question Kevin when it comes to presentation of a cocktail. Um, uh, recipe, flavor, uh, anything that has anything to do with the menu, uh, I don't even, I'm a, I'm a guest. I, I come in and go, yeah, I, I don't like the mezcal in that. And he goes, yeah, that, we didn't make that for you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's as far as that goes, you know. Um, you know and and, and, and they, they humor me and let me t- talk about garnishes sometimes. Um, but, no, that's, that's, that's a pretty strong. And we both have a lot of shared vision on customer experience, on, hey, this is a neighborhood bar first, therefore we don't do x or y um even though there's other cocktail bars doing that um so then and then if it you know if it's if it's real estate related lease lease related dealing with this landlord dealing with this investment document you know i i I don't think kevin gets he he, okay if that's going to work you know whatever you know so that division of labors also helps a partnership because i think if we both wanted to do the same thing all the time and also both had very strong feelings about everything that would i think that would be hard on any two people right you definitely want to find a partner who compliments you uh you yeah. d- divide and conquer divide right? and conquer and, and having a shared vision yes right? the, the the overarching vision of the neighborhood bar that also has kick-ass cocktails and an amazing whiskey list that kind of helps guide you yeah the one other thing I wanted to resurface out of the, that, that stack of three was um, your friends, which you hear so often never go into business with family and friends. I don't agree with that. Oh, I don't agree with that either. I think um, it's even when you're behind the bar and you're hiring your, your staff, uh, you know, bar back servers, you want to work with people right. that you want to hang out with, exactly. right? If you're spending you eight hours with, behind yeah. a bar during a busy shift with people that grind on your Personally, it's just going to add to the stress and the pressure. Right, but you don't we, want that. We became friends, though. The partnership really is first. We were, we were had a shared vision. We we spent time together talking about this this um, what became Dram and Draft, and we you know worked all through that, and then built these um, really as a business partnership. So it's not like we were big buddies um, for ten years and then did a bar together. Because I think that would, I, th- I think that could be problematic. You know, we, we, we look at ourselves as, as business partners who are friends, okay. um, not as friends who became business partner. At least I do. I've never, yes. we've never actually discussed that. But I would, I would characterize it that way that we, we became friends as business partners. I don't see any tears rolling down Kevin's face. <laughs> <laughs> He's breaking up with me. Uh, no, I think that's fair. That's fair. That's a good point. I think now is a good time to take a break and thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often, Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. 
not. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And where we left off, you guys now in the timeline, it's, it's what, 2007? You guys opened your first location in 2008 in Rally, correct? No, no. I think he did. He opened oh, Rally right. Point in 2008. Rally Point. That's Our right. first bar was 2016. 2016, that's right. We um, probably met around 2008 or 9 or 10. How did you guys meet? I was uh, doing research to open a cocktail bar and thought I certainly could, as most restaurateurs do, right? And so I'm going to the best cocktail bar in town at the time and uh, sitting in front of uh, uh, the guy that everybody said knows what he's doing and has trained a lot of the bartenders in the area and was the the mixologist in town. What bar did you use this? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in front of him. He's breaking egg whites to make me a whiskey sour. And I'm like, oh, gosh. I don't know anything. <laughs> and uh, then we, we got talking. I started coming I'm in, going Kevin. in. Yes, okay. yes. And that was Kevin Barrett. And, and he showed me, not on purpose, but showed me how little I knew and how unprepared I was to do anything remotely with the, the word cocktail in it. And I went back to Rally Point where I was trying to have like a cool cocktail program and went, Let's not even try. Let's go back to it's just rum and coke, guys. <laughs> we were fresh squeezing. I had a, I had a, a juicer on top of the bar. I remember, remember that. I and I'm I trying remember. to do all this stuff. And I'm, I, I really was trying to be a cocktail guy, right? I was around this time. Uh, Gary Crunkleton opened his spot yes. in Chapel Hill, right? Yes, absolutely. That was 2008. I mean, you, it was right around 2008. Yeah, yeah, I think it was because he, he's actually up next right after you guys. He's coming in. Love Gary. Sure. Yeah, Gary's so many known Gary since right, right around back then. Um, I'm sure coming to to rally, you're probably looking for the other you know bar geeks. Yes, sure. well, and it's funny. I had this conversation not long ago that back then there weren't many bar geeks around. Period. Right. It was Gary out in Chapel Hill. Uh, Shannon Healy at Alley 26 opened right around then, maybe like 2010 or something. But um, there, there just weren't weren't many around. And then I and then gradually we started finding each other. I noticed yeah. you didn't say uh, Drew Drew at uh, Rally Point. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rally Point was a sports bar. It was a fantastic. Is still a fantastic sports yeah. bar. But um, the cocktails there were. Um, hey, they used fresh juice, yeah. so that's a. a hey. That's quality. Quality. I was yeah, trying, true. but if you <laughs> yeah. don't understand balance and all the other things, then that's kind of it's right. using fresh juices. Yeah, right. Uh, are you familiar with the book? Either of you, uh, America stumbles into a, or I think America stumbles into a bar or something like that, or drunk. 
how he sips stumbled in. I can't remember the, the who, subtitle. Who read it? Who wrote it? Um, I can't remember that either. Um, I had him on the show too. <laughs> oh, I don't oh, know. There's so many when you when you breach a thousand episodes, it's hard to keep track of everybody's name. That's um, amazing volume. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was just, I I have a feeling that Gary probably read it because I know he's he really geeks out about the history. Yes, he does. Um, he's like an encyclopedia. Yeah. He's he's great. So I'm definitely going to try to tap into the. I mean, the, the the history of alcohol is amazing when you really dive into it. Going back to like when we were monkeys, like, yeah, and, and how we developed so like, like Dave t- Dave Wonders stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like like we developed a taste for like overripe fruit, and we needed mm-hmm. to develop this enzyme that is able to break down alcohol because we're not meant to to eat it, and that gave us like we're like one of five species that can consume alcohol, and it's usually primates because mm-hmm. of, of fruit, and then like we start getting drunk off fruit. Not literally, but that's how we developed our like taste for it. But it, it, there's, it's a fascinating book. His name will come to me eventually, and I'll mention it, but I'm not good on the spot. Anyway, I digress. Um, so on the timeline, you guys, um, you 2008 Open Rally Sports Bar. Yes. Did I say that right? Rally Point. Yeah, Rally Point Sports Bar. It was actually 09. 09. Yeah. Um, you're, you moved to town into 2008, and you're working. I did, yes. Here. So you go and... It, or a patron at one of his bars where he's working and you're like, damn, this dude knows what's going on. So you, at what point did you guys start talking about maybe like, you know, sharing, a, creating a shared vision? Like when did that start to happen? Probably when you came back from Argentina. So yeah. Kevin did a, uh, I don't know what you actually call that. A walk call about a sub- sabbatical sabbatical, but he was working. So he, he, um, went down to Argentina and worked in a bar and, uh, what was it about six, seven months? Uh, it's closer to a year. Actually. Okay. What year is this? This is 2012 from, uh, I think it was like the beginning of March till almost November. Uh, and I, I wanted to stay. That was the original plan. But, uh, you know, money, well, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he went with a girl and a oh. dog and came back with a dog. <laughs> yeah. My, well, at least, yeah. at least got the dog. Yes. My, my dog and I had a wonderful, happy, long relationship. Um, and she's off having a great, wonderful life. But... Uh, yeah, Argentina was great. I actually thought I was getting out of the service industry when I went to Argentina, but instead I went to work at a bar, a quote-unquote American bar in Buenos Aires. And, man, we could do three podcasts just on that bar and stories from that bar. It was Good stories? or It was a lot of terrible fun. <laughs> uh, but also, I was down there, I drew up a business plan for a bar. Because I don't know, I, like I said, I think I was born a barman. It's just in my blood, and I couldn't, I couldn't get away from it. So you guys both have your shared in. Well, you have a shared vision, but that started as two independent visions, and then yeah. you, you guys realized that you had similar visions. At, well, at some point, I think in the, those early days, though, that yeah, it probably was two separate visions, but they very quickly merged into one decision. And the best example of that is when we were trying to come up with the name. We're sitting on the patio of a coffee shop, and we were saying words at each other. <laughs> and you know, I think we got to Dram or Dram House or Dram or Dram exists somewhere already. We don't want that. We want something else. And then somebody said Dram and Draft, and I don't know if he said it or I said it, but as soon as it was said, I think it was yeah, it right was there. Clicks. Like that's it. That's yeah. that's the right answer. There's no. No question. Let's stop talking about it. That's the answer. So you come back from Argentina with a dog. Oh, yes. <laughs> one less in your party. Yes. Um, and 
when did you did you find out Kevin was back? Did you did you see him in town? Like, oh, I thought you were out of here. You're back. Like, how I, did you guys reconnect? I showed him my business plan. Oh, yeah, okay. he reached out, and we got together, and um, yeah. So when you showed him the business plan, were you looking for investors or were you just looking for a colleague? I was looking for feedback at that yeah. point in time. It was so early. And it's it's funny because back then, uh, lots of things were happening around Drew's neighborhood, right? Around Rally Point. And he, his feedback was, you know, he looked over it. He looked at some numbers. He was like, good, good, whatever. And then his feedback was, this is great. I'll do anything I can to help you. But right now I have to tighten up my shop because of whatever's going on here but I'll help you. And if this is still around in a year or two or whatever, um, maybe we'll talk then. And and that was great feedback because it was like, I I'll do whatever I can to help you, but you know, I'm not the guy right now. Um, and then he, it was a few years later, we, we got back together and started talking again seriously about that. Not that we didn't talk in between, but that was more cocktails and fun. Mm -hmm. And then I think, uh, I don't know what the, do you know what the impetus was to to get us talking about a bar again? Was there, was I, there a I don't. space available? Or there was something that like tipped it over there. I don't because I kept talk, working on it and talking to other people, and I had I had some people lined up with all the all the ammo in the world, but no trigger finger. You know, we kept looking at spots, and they had they wanted to be involved, but they weren't in the industry. You know, they they saw it from afar and thought it was interesting and fun. And we looked at a ton of spots and, you know, between all of them, they had all the money in the world, but they just couldn't dive in. And I was at some point in time over ready, right? I had like dealitis. I was like, we'll take that one. We'll take that one. We'll take that one. But, um, but no one was ready to actually pull the trigger. And then, uh, Drew's, Drew's got a happy trigger finger. So what changed inside you? How did you go from not in the position, not able to help to like, I'm, I'm well, I trains. wanted to do it all along. It was just, I think, and Kevin's kind of reminded me of that. I, I don't remember what was going was on. Bass Pro Shop was coming into oh, your shopping yes, center. It was going to increase the, yeah. So the, I was, uh, and we traffic. did, we went up yeah. 27% in yeah. sales, which we were already was this at rally doing point? well. This is rally point. Yeah. Right. So we had a dead shopping center. I was kind of the anchor. And there was a, they, they, it was empty, and then it was Pottery Barn, which doesn't bring in business for a sports bar. And then Bass Pro Shop went into where Pottery Barn went, and that changed it. You I know, bet. and that was big. And I said, I can't. I need to be in the kitchen. I need to be, you know, uh, uh, at the bar. I need to be working and and concentrating on training and all that. So we did that, and I and and then that also helped because I was making more money at that point when you know we increased twenty seven percent, and so. You know, I had I had this bar idea I wanted to do. Well, it, it turns out, by the way, like what we do is not so unique. What's unique is we do it well, and we 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 have a great design, and we have a great you know our culture um, is big consistency. So it's not like oh, you guys did you know something that nobody's done before. It's a it's a whiskey cocktail bar that has some overriding principles that makes it work for us and we take really good care of our store i like to think we take very good care of our staff we don't have high turnover we took care of them during covid i think that helps with the cultures like these guys are not going to leave us hanging when everybody was scared um so we we and we really genuinely care about our staff um so i think there's things that make it different but let's be on, on the at the at the thirty-five thousand foot level we haven't you know changed the industry you know, it's 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 a bar. Um, 
so we wanted to do that. We wanted a good bar. And then we started looking for locations. And um, the way I remember the name thing, Kevin came up with Dram, and then Dram House kind of stuck for a little while. It's actually on yeah. some of our early P&Ls. Yeah. And I was selling so much beer, which it turns out I was wrong, by the way. I was serving so much beer, and beer is profitable, and I had a lot of events around beer and all that, that I was like, we have to have draft. And, of course, I was like, D-R-A-F-T, draft. And Kevin thought about, or you said when you first heard, heard well, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but he came back with, let's, dram is an old measurement, right? It's an old word. Let's do the old spelling of draft, D-R-A-U-G-H-T. Yeah. And, I, and, it, and then it stuck. Now, the truth is, what, what do we sell about? 12% beer at most locations? Yeah, it's, a, it's, 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 over, it's 80% cocktails and liquor. Yeah, and, so and, yeah. I, I just came from a place that was selling, you know, but you also want to have something for everybody because absolutely you don't want to just like like if you go with a group of eight people, you know there might be that one person who doesn't want to have a cocktail. So that one person will pull everybody to a place where everyone's happy, right? That's right. So I think it's good to have like I think you guys don't I don't know, to convince you guys of this, but to, to have that diversity, but to have a focus, but to have something for everyone too. I, I yeah. agree, and we have you know twelve, fourteen taps. Uh, Carrie's the only one with, or no, Carrie and Wilmington. Carrie and Wilmington are only six. have six. It's funny where you how much like where you see the eighty twenty rule show up sometimes. Yeah, right. You know, and like it sounds like you guys Correct are close to well. that 80-20. Oh, yeah, if you put wine in with beer, if you said beer and wine, it's 80, you know, it's 80-20 rule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it shows up everywhere. It's crazy once you figure it out. It's What is it, Pareto's principle or something? Pareto's law. Pareto's yeah. law, that's what it is, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's also worth, Drew, mentioning that you, uh, you owned a bunch, uh, at least three restaurants, right? Aside from Dram and Draft, or I know you had the, the Rally Point. Rally Point, Remington, Remington Grill. Remington Grill. You also had a cigar shop? Nope. Where did I see that? I think I saw that on LinkedIn. We like cigars. We like cigars. <laughs> we could take you to a cigar place. Oh, I owned a cigar company. That's what it was. It wasn't a bar. It was actually a brand. Branded cigar company. Bonded. Bonded, bonded cigar. Yeah. Bonded yeah. Cigar. And you notice if you look at the label, it looks a lot like a whiskey label. Oh, okay. And that's on purpose. Right. Um, and I uh, went down to the DR. I was doing some charity work down there and met some guys that owned a, a factory. And I... Designed a, a, a label with a friend of mine, and we, we were off to the races selling cigars. What was Hadley's? Hadley's was a, the Kevin and I's first bar. Okay. Um, it's a name that shall not be discussed. No. <laughs> Wait, so you guys opened a restaurant, a bar together before? We were Graham? already opening a Dram on, on Hillsborough Street, and this opportunity came up, and it was a great opportunity, and it all worked out. We just ended up, again, the lease. Uh, the lease got us... Um, and, you know, it was not a success. We had it sold. I mean, the guys that bought it turned it into something else. So it, 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 it is what it is. But um, so it you was got, a, you guys were collaborating on DRAM. And then there was another a satellite opportunity that came up that you said, well, let's, let's take a swing at this. You developed a whole new concept mm-hmm. yeah. while trying to open DRAM Draft. Yes. That the, didn't work out. The reason we did that, I think that was reaching a little bit, right, while we were doing DRAM. But the reason we did that is that we were – Facing so many really uh, uh, bureaucratic delays for for Dram, the city was delaying us unnecessarily. I think, in my opinion, um, and at some point in time, we weren't sure if Dram was going to happen. 
that's how bad it was. We we could have we were postponed indefinitely, possibly canceled. So um, was it construction issues? Zoning? It was zoning issues. Zoning, and we actually had to. It, it's not really suing the city. It's it's called uh, the uh, board of um, adjusters. Adjusters, yeah. and so you've got a, an actual judge. It's a judicial proceeding. It's uh, I think they called it quasi judicial. Yeah. And so we have an attorney. You know, the city has their attorney, um, and you're in front of a, a judge, and uh, we won. So, but that took what. You know, tens of thousands of dollars and six months or more. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, it slowed us oh, up. Oh, at least six months, yeah. Yeah. So. It was brutal. It was brutal. When we were at the, the uh, judgment and they judged in our favor, I was in my seat and I just kind of melted down. Like, <laughs> oh, Can you get into the details of that? Sure. So um, the owner of the property, a guy named Jim Zioni, he um, was our first landlord with the Dramon Draft, great guy. He's done a bunch of development around this town. He's from Charlotte. Um, and he, he gave us a lease that he wouldn't give to anybody else. That, this is a, the, the gas station that sat empty for years and because uh, we gave him the right to kick us out. So this was the, the little switch that allowed us to go in. We said, well, after three years, you can give us three hundred grand or whatever, which I thought was going to be much more than construction, turned out not to be, but, um, and you can kick us out, which is actually what ended up happening. Um, but we got a new location and anyway, that's all the whole other location isn't, no, it's torn down. We're on the same block on the catacorner, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the city, our block was designated for 10 story buildings, which then you have to give the city 15 feet for sidewalks and this was a, a less than quarter acre piece of property and 15 feet around was i think he had said it was 20 percent of his property and they weren't paying him for it well we weren't building a 10-story building it makes sense he actually did sell it to people that built a 10-story building they did give 15 feet to the city but all we were doing was remodeling Got and it. they should not have the only thing we needed one more parking place so we had to go through city planning yeah if we didn't have to go through planning and it was just strictly a remodel we wouldn't, he wouldn't have to give the land. So for one parking place, it kicked this in. It was ridiculous. didn't pass the smell test. They shouldn't have, have held us up. No. Yeah. And uh, we, we won. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show that like there's so many things, so many variables that can bury something from ever even getting off the ground. Because like, not everybody has $10,000 like, additional. Like, and so many unforeseen things that you could not possibly right. predict going into it. The only thing we can predict now is that something unpredictable is going to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. During that construction phase, absolutely. Something's going to delay you. Something's going to cost you more money. And you have to be ready to roll with the punches. You have to be ready to race to a fire and put it out. And you have to be ready to run into a hurricane. So whatever you plan on spending for a build-out, double oh. it. Double it. At least 50%. And we're, we're blessed. We have, we have uh, a couple – we have several really good investors, one of which um, has – time and time again stepped in and said hey i'll do this this will get us there just you know it and and so mark martek has been a a blessing of a of an investor partner um and we're really we really are blessed like a lot of people investor partners can be their bane of their existence our guys are mainly uninvolved and just love getting because we do dividends you know we, we we they get paid um, which is rare sometimes in restaurants, right? Yeah. Well, and Mark is, is um, um, he, they just believe in us and, and have backed us up. Yeah. Uh, how close were you to doubling what you thought it was going to be? 
That one, um, <laughs> that one was not as bad. The first one as doubling, even right. with all the the uh, other things. We we had a general contractor as a local home builder, Rex Boss. He builds gorgeous, gorgeous multi million dollar homes, and he lent us a super. So we like it, any. It was pretty much at cost. Everything was at cost, uh, and we hadn't had the pandemic, so we didn't double everything, and and subcontractors were still willing to work, and. So it didn't. It's the other ones that have what what used to cost five hundred thousand is nine fifty, and that's right. real numbers. Um, it's just yeah, it's expensive now, especially now with yeah. the cost of goods going up. Um, so in this journey, like t- like you guys, you 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 finally are able to open right the the current location where the where the OG location. How were you? How long were you at the OG location? Three years. Three years. Yeah, three it years. Was almost exactly three years. Like taking us through the journey, like what were the what were the tipping points? What were the what were the the, the challenges? How did you overcome? Like, get specific. So many. I know, so right? So How do you many. choose? Uh, you know, it, I'll I'll tell you this though. It, it didn't take long for me. There was so much pressure, and I, you know, you're so nervous because you have a business plan. You have an idea of what you're going to do. The business plan's all fiction until you open the doors. Right. Once you open the doors, then you know what you can get a feel for it. It didn't take long, I don't think, for either one of us to realize, like, all right, this is good. It's a good product. This is built to last. People like this. We can do this. This is going to, I mean, that happened in the first four weeks, I think. And then those first six months were super tough because we were still climbing out of uh, the hole of construction and all the delays, and uh, money was real tight. Um, I think. Uh, the next six months were markedly different. And then once we got to that one year mark, things were great. I personally, you know, that first year was the poorest I've been in my adult life. So I mean, what, what, what was the tipping point? Like what started to change? Was it just, was it just like, did you guys have operating capital to, did you have a runway? We had almost none by the time we, we had opened the, the we first had the opposite. Yeah. We had the opposite. Sign yeah. guys calling us. We're like, we'll give you 500 this week. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, well, they it say it the takes opposite. about a year. And to, Kevin. Was, and that's, that's about accurate. To, to find those, you know, the, that, that 20% that makes up 80% of your revenue, right? Those regulars that, like, call your spot their spot. Yeah. What, what I find a lot, now that we've done it a few times, and, and I'd done it for other people before we did Dram Draft, is you open up, you have a... a brief honeymoon period it could be a weekend it could be a month you know 15 years ago it was probably like three months in this town but you have a brief period where you're the hot spot and everyone goes and everything looks great and then things kind of come back down out of orbit right come back down to earth and then then you're spending time building your client base you're building your guest list reputation yes you're building your regulars and that takes time um, anywhere with right. anything, I think. No matter how hot your, your, your concept is, it takes time. Right. And it's usually about a year. Right. And then that second year, you're really building your business. So whatever you think the build-out's going to be, double it. And then have a year of operating capital thereafter. Oh, you yeah. really want to play it safe. Uh, but most people, I mean, you guys didn't have that. So it can be done. But like to have that cushion, to have that, that something to lean on during that, that first year to year and a half, um, it's huge. Yeah, it, we didn't have that. Yeah, yeah. It, it can, yeah, it can be done. But look at Drew and I. We're we're both twenty eight years old. Look at what happened. Look <laughs> what happened to us. This yeah, this was gray. This was not gray. <laughs> so and Kevin was able to. So he he actually worked the bar, and that was part of I think the whole tipping point was you know you had his reputation. He's actually training the first people. You know he's creating the culture, the cocktail culture certainly. 
Um, and he's at times not taking any money home because he wants the bartenders that are there to, to take something home. So give him a reason to stick around. Yeah. So it was, it was some tough, that, that first year was a tough year. Uh, and then, you know, sales started coming and, you know, we're doing events and we're, you know, making, you know, we're, we, we fought for it the way you have to fight for it. Now we have a reputation and we open in a town and it's, you know, there's a little bit more. I'm not saying it's a gimme, but there's people waiting for us. And so it's not that, hey, this is what we are. This is what we do. There's enough articles out there. There's enough collateral out there that people have an idea of, oh, okay, you guys are coming to town. You know, great. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something briefly, events. That's, I think, huge. I think being, especially in the bar industry, you're almost like an events company that first, you know, is that true with you guys? Are you guys? Show- it has been uh, certainly at Rally Point. I was almost like it was a hundred percent events. Now some of those are planned for you, called Sunday football, you know, yeah. college football Saturdays, you know, this kind of thing, UFC events. So some of it's planned for you, but then you have to say we're flying in crawfish from you know Alabama, and we're going to cook crawfish, and this beer company is going to work with us, and we're going to get this band, and you're creating the event. And so I was very driven into event. Uh, um, you know, at DRAM, I would say, and I, I'll be interested to hear Kevin's thought on this, I, I would say we're not as a dr- event, like, what's the event today, you know, in order to have business. You know, we don't have to do that. We're going to be busy Saturday without an event, uh, whereas Rally Point, even though it's a big sports bar, if you didn't have anything on Saturday, you had your regulars at the bar. It could be very, you know, slow day. So it was very event-driven. We're, we're kind of our, the event is our product as the experience. Right. We, we, we like to say we don't sell liquor, we sell an experience. And, and that experience is ongoing when those doors are open, day, you know, the whole time the doors open. Now, having said that, we have a person that runs events, and she's very, very good. So I don't want to say we don't do events because our menu rollouts are events, our openings yeah. are events. Um, Kentucky Derby's an event. Uh, we have ceos we have one coming next week we have ceos of liquor companies that come in brand ambassador so we do these events we do these book signings so we do stuff but i i would personally say dram and draft is not one of those that has to have an event you know every weekend and has to have events to be uh busy well That's it sounds like you input. lean more on consistency and events i feel like or like almost the antithesis because you're constantly changing you know, like right. it's a new I, thing every day. Yes, I think that we we do events um, not anywhere near like the rally point schedule, but we do events. Um, and to me, an event is just another way to kind of touch the guest. You know, put it out there on social media, even if you only have a few people show up, you're just reminding them that we're we're doing stuff. We're here. When's the last time you were it's here? It's an opportunity and to make noise, exactly. And to drop people exactly. something who might share an interest. And, and sometimes our events are things that we do before we open for the industry you know the book signings that we do we usually do it an hour or two before we open offer like a complimentary drink and let people come in and get their book signed and then it leads into good business of course right but it's just um it's it's being a, a good member of the community as well what does that as look uh, like? well i think i think it's again some of those events that we do and i think being a responsible member of the hospitality community which has undergone a lot of change over What's the last few years like? <laughs> i love oh yes questions um well it starts i think it starts at our place right we have to be responsible owners of the brand and good leaders to the people that we work with and i think that our goal is um now that we've created kind of this um 
you know, we kind of have an org chart now where there's Drew and I, and there's a handful of people that we work with directly, and then they should work directly with the managers at each location because we cannot be, as much as Drew is Superman sometimes, he can't be in seven places at once. And then all of those managers have to be good leaders to all the people that they're working with at each location. And, and that is just, I think, being consistent and having your values and your vision and being consistent about that. Um, and I think, you know, here's another mantra for our business. It's more communication, clear communication, clear communication of expectations. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's a big part of it. And then as far as just the community goes outside of our brand, most of the events that we do have a charity component to them. So, and all of our menus have a drink on there that is tied to some charity. And it's usually, it's a North Carolina charity, a local, more of a local thing. None of the big national ones that are just kind of like, give your money to this. It's something that impacts the community a little bit more. Well, that's where we're to I feel like if, if that's where you're going to find your draw, you know, not that you're do. I mean, it's a, it's a balance of giving back and using these events to draw people in. Let's be honest. But why, why are people going to care about a national event that's not really relevant to them? You know, right. if, if there's a local community here, people who live here who support that, 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 um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Jesus, we were literally just talking about, uh, the charity charity thank you people who who are affected by that charity or who have others who are affected by that charity like they're going to rally around it they're going to drive people in because it's relevant to this community that's right yeah yeah um, i think it's also just our responsibility to right. you know being a part of the community a member of the community give back to the community absolutely uh, and i think you're also doing it by you know empower like being good to your staff is another way you're giving back to your community i mean they are a part of your community you're you're it sounds like you're training them really well you're providing opportunity to them you know, in, in a growing company, you know, so like even just being a good business owner is in a sense giving back to the community. Well, it's certainly give back to the industry because we get asked, you know, our friends ask us that own bars. Well, how, how are you doing this? What are you doing here? What are you doing? And we do things like you just said, training, you know, we, we should, every restaurant, every store shuts down every once a week and there there's training for all hands on deck and it's ours. We've got, People go, going through, you know, bar smarts, going through uh, executive whiskey uh, uh, steward. We have people reading. We have a book club. That's part of this Dave and Dave's book. Is yeah. that's going to be our, our next book? We just did um, what Danny setting Meyer the table. Setting the table yeah. So you know, I would, I would say you know that when we talk to other restaurateurs about how we treat our staff and what we're doing and you know we, we you know we like we pride ourselves on having as little trash as possible so we juice a lot well we have a compost company that picks up all of the compost stuff and then of course we have liquor bottles but those are recycled we use mostly keg beer well those are cleaned and reused we can go through a day and have one you know trash bag and then a big recycling thing of bottles uh so we we try to do and we and i we talk to people about that you know we we, we use you know stainless steel straws well now we're using what are they bamboo uh they're agave agave i knew they were something fibers. different <laughs> so we're just and we're trying and they may be bamboo next week i don't know we're gonna try we're gonna try and figure out some of the best ways to have as little trash as possible and um you know we buy from a produce company now we can't lie and say our all our produce is is local because we use so much citrus but we do buy from a small local company that that when we get 
basil and things like that. We're trying to get as, as close to home as yeah, possible. Yeah, the middleman's from home. And the middleman's from home. There's nothing we can do. You're not getting North Carolina lemons. You know? Right, right. So. Uh, so one question I have about the uh, charity before we move on to how you've scaled uh, and how you've grown your hierarchy. Um, you said you had menu items. Yeah. Uh, that are tied to a charity. Do a percentage of proceeds go to that charity? How do you? How do you? Uh, we that? usually pick like a dollar amount, like a couple dollars for every drink uh, goes to this charity. So, do you like do the menu engineering? Figure out what it costs to make that drink, and then just oh, tack yeah. on another dollar. Yes, and uh, <laughs> gets you want to pick a drink that's popular, and you want to obviously pick a drink with a good liquor cost, right? So that we can. But give we don't a tack dollars. on a dollar. No, no, we don't, no, yeah, exactly. No, it's real money to us because if it's a twelve dollar cocktail and we're giving two dollars out, we're only getting ten. Yeah, we're just eating the. the we're just what, eat it. Yeah, we're not marking it up to counter that. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah. well, that's what I was curious about. Like, how do you, how do you go about the menu engineering with that? How do you account for that? Is it is it so you, you just do the menu engineering and you're basically taking from your profit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this last menu, this current menu, we are supporting Skate Raleigh, which is uh. You know, a, a skate park off of Capitol Boulevard, and we're donating—I forget how many dollars. I just did the spreadsheet the other day, but a certain amount of dollars per drink, and we picked the drink that is the number one selling drink on the menu. So it's a real donation because yeah. if we if we didn't, we would still sell that many drinks. Right. It's not like you know. Um, when yeah. you work in profit, are you accounting for the profit you want to take? Like, do you? Does that make sense? So, like, say you want to do a fifteen percent margin, right? Yeah. Um, do you reverse engineer it in a way that, like, even after making the donation, like? Oh no, no, okay. no, not not. Thanks, you're giving me a great idea for next menu, but no, we haven't <laughs> no. done that. No, we just eat it. But it we just shows it. your generosity, and you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm just curious how you set that up, you know? And I, I think just it just goes to show that when you, I mean, you are eating it, but at the same time, when you do things like that when you make it about other people it comes back around you can't track it that's right you can't track it but you know that it's it's bringing people back yeah and that's just the business side i think personally we both do a lot of things outside of the business that you know it's not doing it for any other reason than it's good thing to do right thing to do and right we're not gaining any marketing off of it and we're not gaining any you know besides maybe good vibes i mean he goes to Haiti all the time and does charity work down there. I have uh, uh, certain groups that I donate to every month personally that, you know, it's just, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, no need to say anymore. <laughs> uh, so, so when we left off in your timeline, you were a year in, you spent, Kevin, you were behind the bar for the first year. You were donating your tips essentially to the staff, barely getting by. Uh, and then momentum started to pick up. You started to collect your regulars. What was if looking so that was 2017, right? Yep. Um, we're five years later, six years, six years later. God, it seems like a lifetime ago when you talk <laughs> about Kevin behind the bar at the original dram. I mean, that does to me, I'm, I'm being dead serious. That seems further away to me than like, you know, college years. It just seems forever ago. So what has the, the evolution over the past six years been? If you guys have been open for seven years, the first year was just stay alive. Like sure. what, like what was that? how have you transformed during this time? Like what were the, the the evolutionary points for you? So then we had a developer come to us, which is uh, the first time that's ever happened in my history, right? I mean, it's uh, restaurant tours fight for spaces and have to be out there. So we had a, a, a gentleman that owned a, a, a gas station similar to ours, 
in Greensboro, and um, his guy, Marty Cotis. Yeah, Marty, but no, I can't remember the guy's name. Ryan. Ryan came to us and said, you know, Marty would like to, you know, take you out, come see this space, blah, blah, blah. And we did, and he's got an eight-acre development, and he's going to do all this grand vision. And um, we're still it on that eight acres that's open. Uh, It's just he's run into problems with the city whatnot. Uh, So we built that location, and... um, that was our first, like, okay, we're hiring a staff and, and training. And, you know, that was, it was a great learning experience for us. And that happened. The, Ryan came to us months after we had opened. And I think that we both. Ryan had, was the developer, right? Uh, Marty Cotis was the developer. Okay. Ryan worked for, for Marty. Got it, got it. Yeah. Uh, and we both had uh, the idea that we would do more than one. And when Ryan came to us, I was like, this is way too soon. No way. You know, and but it's crazy how when you when you tap into that success and you find something that works, how like how like success just like compounds, like how like opportunities success. That's success. Tr- yeah, that's it right. really does. Activ- what did you say? Activity breeds productivity. Pro- yeah, yeah, there we go. But I, this is another lesson we learned. I thought to myself, this is way too soon. We should slow roll this. But yes, we should do it. And I, you know, it was supposed to happen. We were going to have two in the first year. Of course, the second one didn't open for an additional year because everything takes longer than you think, mm-hmm. right? So I think uh, working on things and, and slowly pushing things forward, you know, don't be intimidated because all of those delays are going to come somewhere, right? It, it could have been in the beginning. There was a little bit of delay in the beginning. It did, you know, it takes months to negotiate a lease and, you know, agree on everything and then actually sign the lease and then raise the money. All that takes time without the delays. So, the lesson for me was, you know, we think this is going to happen in a year, plan on two years. Right. So whatever time or money it is, double it. <laughs> every, every, everything that works against you, double it. And cut your sales and your profits in half. Yeah. You just learn yeah. the restaurant so, business. It'll take twice as long as you think to make profit. But even if you don't have to double it, at least you have that cushion. At least you have that security. You know? Yes. It gives um, you options. Right. Gives you options. Yep. What do you say? Options. The general with the most the, options wins. That's right. That's general right. options We're coming get activity circle. is that, that's <laughs> yeah. our combined uh, mantra. So you went to, sorry, you went from 2016 to, when was the second location built? 2018. Opened. Two years. Opened. Opened, yeah. So it was July 29th, 2016 but to like September 7th, approached you a year after, so you were right. Like oh, no, they approached us months after. And then it took. Months after opening, yeah, after the original, we had just opening. opened Raleigh, and they came to us because they, he had seen it. Uh, that oh wow, these guys turned this gas station into this gorgeous bar, and and we we immediately got because again, and this is where I th- I think it was so important. Kevin was behind the bar. We immediately got good press coverage. It was articles. It was things, and people were seeing it. Mm-hmm. So it, it 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 helped you know a lot. We had a great designer. It was designed beautifully. It was very cozy. It was, I mean, it was sharp Art Deco style. Everything. It was. It was a good spot. So the timeline is: you open in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, you have your second location in 2018. Yeah. 2019, you closed the first location and reopened someplace else. Yeah, June of 2019, we had to close Dram Original. We'll call it in Raleigh. Yeah. And prepare to move to Dram Raleigh, which is on the same block, which is where we are now. So we were closed for four weeks. 
It wasn't long. We, we were meant not to be closed. Uh, it was the idea. So but everything takes logistics. longer. Did we already <laughs> yeah. say that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you were you were planning it. So when when you're ready to close original the dram rally would have been ready to receive you i literally wanted to have like a party and have everybody grab bottles and have bagpipes lead us from one to the <laughs> so other so incredibly illegal <laughs> which is so incredibly illegal uh, but would have been a great party it would have been a great picture uh, it's only illegal if they catch you um so all right so what what was the reason for closing dram og was it because the, that three years was up it was the redevelopment and we didn't have to leave after three years we had to leave if they sold it for redevelopment after three and years they and they and they did they satisfied a bunch of stipulations for us so we walked out it was heartbreaking but we walked away from that deal okay probably better off because dram raleigh now is bigger a little bit nicer right. with a nicer covered All outdoor the seating. You wish you would have done. And three times a week, I hear people say, "I love Dram, but I miss the original." Mm. And I'm like, "Thanks, man. Thanks, me too." So I would like to spend the rest of our time talking about the evolution of Dram Draft and how you guys went from that two locations. I know the pandemic hit. We don't have to talk a lot about that. I'm sure. You pivoted a ton. You did a bunch of stuff, but I don't want to waste time talking about something that let's hope it doesn't. I mean, there's always a chance another pandemic hits, but we at least the industry's had a trial run of knowing what we can do. We have a clue now of what happens, what you do when there's a pandemic. I know what I'm doing if there's another one. Closing. <laughs> Disappearing into the hills of Guatemala. You'll never hear from me again. I can only imagine. Well, what, what was it like for you guys? I'm sure you had plans to scale. Were you planning on trying to open more drams after 2000? We had just moved the original dram. It had been open six months, and then they shut us down on March 17th, 2020, just as we were getting ready to open our third location in Durham. So... Yes, it was a very hard year, 2020, 20, June 2019 to June 2020 was brutal. And then even the whole summer, we managed to get uh, one location open, but Dram Raleigh was closed for over eight months straight. We did convert the two bars that were currently open into grocery stores for the first couple months. And, uh, and that was just a way to do something uh, and to pay our employees while they were figuring out unemployment and, um, and try to help the neighborhoods too. You know, there was, we were in a couple of the, well, both spots, I think were little food deserts. So we were selling groceries and toilet paper because we could get toilet paper through our industrial suppliers, grocery stores could get toilet paper. Yeah. Bleach and uh, hand sanitizer. And um, you know, I think that was back when we thought that it was going to last for weeks or a couple months. And well, here's what I'm curious about: What was your mindset in January 2020? Where were you? Like, what was the plan? Oh, the plan was uh, Dram Raleigh. After the move, was really getting it, 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 really getting their feet under them. Right? I think even in January, maybe it was February, maybe it was beginning of March. I looked at Drew in Raleigh and said, "Man, we're doing so great here." Just look outside. Look at all that, all that outdoor seating in a, in a month or two. It's going to be so much busier. We're doing great. And then we're getting ready to open Durham in March or April or June of that year. And then the rug gets pulled out from under you. And, uh, I mean, it was brutal. It and we was lost two years. Me. We just Pretty much the way we look at it is you just lose two years. Yeah. Were you committed to Durham? At this point, oh, oh yeah, we, we it was it was done. Waiting for the CO, we could yeah. have called for a CO. We didn't on yeah. purpose because we're like, we call for the CO. Rent starts. Well, yeah. then I'm in this, and this is where the real estate stuff helps. I'm in this email battle 
and I say battle, they were good to us, so I don't want to I don't want to over, but believe me, there was pressure. And there was pressure to open before we should have because, well, we're at 30% outside. We're not opening. This is yeah. North Carolina. We're 30% outside only. And they're like, but the we're winter. seeing, we're seeing, you know, Applebee's is packed. That's because they serve food. So they're yeah. open. You know, yeah. whoever else is open is open. But bars uh, were 30% outside only, way past everybody else. And so we, it was this, we can make you get your CO. You know, you know, you can't just drag that out. It's like, well, if you want to make us get our CO, start that process. And what is a CO? Uh, st- oh, I'm sorry, certificate of occupancy, yeah. which in the lease would have kicked in rent. And so we're, they're kind of like, you're scaring us by not getting it. I'm like, well, I'm scared not getting it. And then it got actually to be a year, and it was like, we need to go ahead and get it, or we could fall under the new rules. And in other words, we might have to go through all the underlying inspections again right. to open that up to city. Uh, um, power is you, you don't want to do that. So then they said, okay, but we'll give you extra time. They were really good to us, but it was a tough time. And that developer, uh, we're in a, in a historic building. It's called Chesterfield building in Durham. They, even after all that, they liked us, you know, they like our operation. I think they like us. I like to think they do. They offered us a spot in Winston in their historic building, which is, was the Bailey power plant, RJ Reynolds power plant um, there, which is, just an absolutely gorgeous dram and draft. And so it's the same owner, same developer, same everything. So even through those battles, we maintained kind of a, a, a peaceful, hey, guys, we're, again, back to what I said about being fair. You, you know, we, we've got to be fair to them uh, as well. And, and I think they saw that. We tried, and we did our best. We fought through the pandemic, I think, as well as, as anybody. And we, we took care of, uh, Kevin mentioned, you know, the, the grocery to pay our employees and to help with the food desert. And that was a very scary time for people in the service industry. I mean, you're talking about people that need to pay their rent, you know, mm-hmm. whether there's a pandemic or not. They need to put food on the table, whether there's a pandemic or not. And so we, and there was no, no unemployment. There was no talk of any of that yet. There was just this, I don't know how long would you say that was, two months? Well, the first few weeks especially were brutal. Yeah. And everybody we, was scared. Had and a, so we paid everybody. Idea. We took yeah. and figured out what were you making, and then we paid them that. We paid them their tips. We paid them, you wow. know, what they would have made had we been open. And and then when they announced, you know, unemployment stuff. We you guys got your PPP and all that stuff. So we got PPP. We got ERC. We did EIA. not get any of the. We got EIDL. We and did we, not of course, get any restaurant recovery. We got no restaurant recovery. Um, we got EIDL, which we're paying back. So yeah, that's, right. you know, but we did get some PPP. We did get PPP. But it now let me say this. In Durham. Okay, because we had no payroll, we had no loss. We although we still have a bank note that we're paying, we still have all this, yeah. this, uh, you know, all kinds of expenses. Um, we got nothing, zero of anything, uh, and because we were just kept from opening, we weren't shut down. Mm-hmm. So two years, fast forwards, you guys. When, when did things start to kick back for you? Like when were you back to like the the original vision? As soon as as we, uh, I want. Kevin to answer this. In my mind, it was as soon as they lifted the 30, you know, in other words, when we could fill back up, it was pretty quick. Yeah, us. I think it was pretty quick. When was that for North Carolina? It was like last week. <laughs> <laughs> like, it went forever. 20, like late 2021? Yeah, no. I think it was not late 20? 2021, Mid- but it was um, 
Like May, June or something? Well, we went to... I already was, forget, too. Yeah, it was May, June 2021 when we could have... Maybe April, May of 2021, we were allowed to have that's, people inside 100% capacity. Yeah, because before that, we were 50% capacity, and we were operating so That's when the vaccine started coming out. It was that spring. It was right around then. Yes, yeah. exactly. It was right around then. And I'll tell you, I, I just that whole period was so hard. That was the, When we first shut down, we didn't know what was happening. It was the first time that I had to look at my life and think about what it was like without Dram and Draft in it. And that was brutal, but, you know, Tim Ferriss writes about it in 4-Hour Workweek and other people have said it, when you face the worst possible situation and then go forward, it's a lot easier, right? because yeah, everything's better than the worst. That's right. And, yeah. and, and that whole time, you know, after we did the grocery stores for a couple months, then dwindled those down, we still kept talking to our employees we kept having our weekly meetings and that was in raleigh and greensboro and they started off virtual then they were you know in person but six feet apart with masks then eventually it was well you're my pod right if you get it we're all going to get it we're we're and there was some of that right there was some of that so and so was here and now everybody's gonna have to quarantine and you know it was just a weird time well we did a good job of not having it spread people got it but then we we we'd let everybody know and and then we yeah we even had people whose roommate got it put them in a hotel for a few days to keep them away from the roommates they wouldn't get it and then spread it to the rest (laughs) of the staff and i think but the important thing is we kept you know with the landlords we stayed in communication with them with our staff we stayed in communication with them when we reopened both bars, we reopened with the staff that we closed with. You know, we didn't have to start over. They stuck with us. Wow. And in Raleigh, it was when we were ready to reopen, I looked at the staff and said, you know, I know everyone's still getting unemployment. You can sit on the couch and play Xbox and keep collecting that check or we can open on Friday. What do you want to do? And everyone Everyone was like, no, no, we're opening. Let's yeah. go. Well, I think that's kind of what happens when you're a high-quality, high-level operator. The people that you're hiring are likely passionate about what they do, right? I'm, yeah. I'm assuming to be – They have to be. They, yeah, they, you wouldn't they make wouldn't it. If you, if you don't want to yeah. go through training for three hours every week. They're and, chomping at the bit. To they're get chomping at the bit. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think they enjoy what they do. And beyond money, because you have to provide money for everyone that works in the organization, everyone wants to be part of something. Right, you don't want to be a nameless, yeah. faceless number fifty-two was bad for mental health. Like that's what happens. Like you, anybody who was a part of something was overnight not a part of anything. That's right. And it's a human need to be a part of something, to grow, to you know, to to contribute to the tribe. You and know, we didn't plan it. Value. We didn't say, oh, we need to have weekly meetings, and now that we're going to get together for lunch, we need to feed everybody once a week, and um, because you know we won't lose anybody, and because this, we just did it naturally, like. These, these people want to be together. They want to see us. They want to see each other. And um, we want to – and the other thing is we always thought we were opening in two weeks. Yeah, I mean, we always, right. two always weeks. thought two, two weeks from now. Because they literally – they had dates. Oh, we're going to make – I don't know if everybody remembers that. An announcement, that. yeah. It's, oh, the CDC is going to have an announcement on the or first. Or the governor going to have the governor. And it was always two weeks from now we'll be open. It was it was a scary time and kind of a silly time at the, at the same time. It was weird confusion like a – I don't know. I don't need – I don't want to – Man. get too political thanks for helping me relive that trauma <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm gonna get, need to go uh, so i tried to get out of it so two years <laughs> you did <laughs> two years after um when, when things get back to normal um what, like were you guys thinking like okay growth because you you were planning on 
growth before the pandemic, right? Right. So we got Durham open, and I think uh, one of that the things opened during the pandemic or that after? opened in 2021, summer of 2021. Okay, so just after everything was starting to open. Yeah, as things were getting back to normal, we got back to 100% capacity inside, and um, uh, vaccines were out there. We opened Durham, and I think the big difference is at some point in time during the pandemic – after we each individually and collectively went crazy, we sat down and said, well, look, either the world's going to end or this pandemic is going to end and things are going to go back to normal. We should keep working. We should keep working on our vision of, of growing and expanding. So Durham, obviously, we had already been working on and talking about because it, it was almost done by the time we got shut down. Winston, we had talked about already. Uh, Charlotte, we had talked about already. The location of Fenton in Cary, North Carolina, we had talked about already. So I don't think any of those leases were signed. Maybe one of Fenton, those was Fenton signed. was. Fenton was signed. Winston and Charlotte, we finalized during the pandemic. And Wilmington was the only one that was kind of unplanned, but always on the board that, that popped up, you know, that was unplanned. And while everything stopped for two years or slowed down for two years, now it looks like we're moving real fast, but we've been working on it for years. It's just coming out of the pipeline real fast because everything got jammed up for a while. Yeah. So what was the evolution like for you? Cause you were working behind the bar for the first year. So how did you move yourself out of the day to day to the point where you're working on the business? Uh, it's probably a little bit longer than the first year, but it was as Greensboro was getting close to open, it was necessary. I had to pull myself out of the business, stop working in the business, start working on the business. I had to start training out in Greensboro. We were lucky to start with a great staff out there as well. Where did that staff come from? Uh, well, you, we, we started with a couple key people, and then I think they really helped. Lance Eisen, who's still with us now, he's our director of operations. He started there and kind of just became the de facto manager before I made him the manager. <laughs> you know, he's just stepped like, into place. Oh, yeah, he did. I mean, he stepped up. Um, he had a reputation out there also, so I think he helped with um, bringing in good people. And um, uh, and I think that we just we started with a good staff and that we had that good culture. Did you bring – well, that, I was curious. Did you bring people from the original location there? No. That was – we weren't ready to do that at that point in time. That's something we do try to do to some degree now. But at that point in time, we weren't ready. I was the person. Like, I brought myself yeah. to Greensboro. You're the culture carrier. And I spent every day in Greensboro. It's an hour and 15 minutes from here. A lot of driving back and forth. A lot of overnight trips. The you know week before we opened and week after we opened, I was there overnight. And then uh, the grand opening was outstanding. And, uh, and I, I drove out there for their weekly meetings. And we made that a different day than it was in Raleigh. That was a lot that was easy when there's only two and they're only an hour and 15 minutes away. Now that there's six about to be seven and they're all over the state. It's a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, I think now is actually a really good time to take a break. Think our sponsors and we'll be right back. Restaurant Unstoppable Network is back, baby, and we're better than ever before. We already have six live events in the works, and we're just getting started. If you sign up for Restaurant Unstoppable Network right now, you can be a part of these six live events. We have Casey Anton, the author of Profit First for Restaurants, talking about Profit First. We have Christine Miles, the author of What Is It Costing You Not to Listen, and It's Costing You a Lot. Tom Sterner, the author of The Practicing Mind, fully engaged, and it's just a thought to help you get into that right that right mindset and to will your future into existence. We have Kathleen Wood, 
the woman behind one thing who's helped so many of our past guests focus and channel their energy to doing one thing really well. We have Mike Payton, the former chief visionary officer or whatever title you want to call it, but he was the guy behind the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS, uh, the, the, the traction library of books. We're going to get him in the network to talk about EOS. And we have Dave Nitzel and Dave Domzalski, co-authors of the bar shift and hospitality DNA to talk about their findings in their most recent book, hospitality DNA. We have a great lineup coming your way. And all you have to do is head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. You'll find a link and a banner for RU network. Click the link, get a 30-day no-strings-attached trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will get a free Restaurant Unstoppable t-shirt. And if you opt in to the annual plan, I'll throw in a Restaurant Unstoppable hat and a mug. But you got to act fast because these are going to go real quick, I have a feeling. And thank you for your support. What would like as far as operations go, as far as like internal evolution, as you get bigger, you need to improve systems, you need to change things. What were the biggest changes you had to endure over the past year and a half from going from two locations to almost six, soon to be seven? Yes. I think, you know, we, we keep talking about it, keep trying to anticipate what we need before we need it. And um, I think a lot of the differences are when we started we would contract out a lot of things to different companies. Now we're starting to bring those people in mm. that work exclusively for us. I think that so, um, social media and events coordination is, is a big example of that. We had a great company that we worked with um, for the first few years, but we just got to a point where we needed someone in-house to do that. So we still work with that company, Rollywood Media. They're awesome, Lisa Jeffries. Um, she, I, I mean, she helped us get off the ground, but we got to the point where we needed somebody yeah. exclusively working on our right. stuff. So now Edie, who uh, Drew had mentioned earlier, handles that exclusively for us. She's somebody that she works with and then, um, and then she contracts out with Rollywood Media for extra help. So that was one of the big differences, kind of building that um, quote unquote office, office people. You know, I, I, we have an office in a WeWork space above uh, Dram Raleigh and we have people in there every day working on dram and draft exclusively, that's a huge difference. It sounds like that nasty, bad word corporate. I was, I, I'm sitting here waiting to say it. So, <laughs> but so Kevin, I like to say organized. We're getting more organized. So Ke- Kevin fought that for a while. Is it, it, mentally, it's a philosophy change, right? Like right. we don't do this. That's corporate. We don't do that. That's corporate. But then when you're actually corporate, which we kind of are, <laughs> yeah. you have to say, well, you know, checklists aren't all bad. You know, this can help this person do their job, right. you know? Um, and so you do get a little bit more corporate, uh, in certain areas and you just have to manage it in a way that it doesn't, um, become corporate to the point where the people are numbers or, um, your employees are a, an asset of the corporation. They're their own asset and we're lucky to work with them. And you've right. got to keep that part of it. There's a shift happening right now where I think the, the world of corporate and individual like mom and pop are colliding where the mom and pops are taking that. It's like a hybrid of like, what are the things that make us like, what is it? Where, where's the soul? How do we maintain that? soul? how do we keep that soul? But how do we bring in structure mm-hmm. to allow us to scale? Because you need corporate 
elements to your business to scale. Right. Like that's the consistency, right? If you're like, if you have one or two locations, you're the consistency. You're the one right. in there putting the constant gentle pressure on everyone saying, no, that's not how we do it. This is how we do it. But when you have six locations, seven locations, you can't be everywhere. And even if you recreated yourselves and others, having like your general managers and your directors of operation, like when you get to 12 locations, it's not going to be enough, you know, like, so you need those right. checklists. You need those systems, those processes, those procedures, those recipe cards and like all these things to corporate things to ensure consistency. Yeah. Especially, yes, consistency. That's the key to have that consistency. You need that corporate organization. The bad part of corporations is they take all the great ideas from small businesses and package them in a corporate package and sell it back to us. The good part of them is they are organized, they are consistent and I appreciate both of those things. I want every damn old-fashioned that goes out from any dram and draft to taste the same, whether you're in Charlotte, Wilmington, or Raleigh. And, uh, you know, organization just makes all of our lives easier. So, um, yes, we are getting more organized. And, and there's an area where success breeds success. Had, had you told some of the original... Uh, employees, bartenders, because Kevin brought on some great bartenders, I I would say, you know, some of the best um, in the city. And if you told them, this is the way I want the old fashioned, this is the way we do it, they may, there may still have been a little bit of that. Yeah, but I really like to do it this way. And I I like to experiment. I like, and, and when you have success to the level that we've had it, you, we have great bartenders that could buy into it and go, okay, this is the way we do the old fashioned. Now I'm going to get my chance to iterate this other drink for the next menu. Cause our, our menu uh, build is one of the things that makes us, I think uh, very unique and uh, very successful. Um, and I really let Kevin, cause that's his baby. Let him talk about it, but that that's their chance to be creative. That's their chance to uh, um, learn and grow and taste things. I was just in, in um, Carrie day before yesterday and, and, and one of the bartenders, can I let you try something I'm working on? Sure. And there's, you know, a, a, what is the ahi tea? That's not quite right. Whatever the tea is, infuse this. And it was just, it was this wonderful cocktail. I'm like, I don't know that you're going to need to change a thing. It's wonderful. And and so they're always throughout the year, they're creating and, and getting to do that. But you don't get to do that with the old fashioned and say, this is the way I make it. You know, it's, it's not. Why is it important to let your team create things? Well, that's all the hard part of this, and I, this is really Kevin should be answering this. Is that's part of this whole training and stuff? When we when we bring in somebody that that has a liquor and they want us to understand this liquor, we go, oh, that would really pair well with this, and they get to take all this training and start working on balancing cocktails. And let me, I'm going to let Kevin answer because I'm really in his. Well, this is his wheelhouse, and I'm the one answering. <laughs> what was the question? It's like the significance <laughs> of um, letting your team create. It's letting them participate, right? It's again, it's letting them be part of something. Right. Your name is on the menu now. You're building. We literally put the name. Oh yeah. This this was designed by our team member. This person, this location. I think we just do first names, right? First names to. I I don't know. Everyone's wants a level of privacy and anonymity right now. I'd put my first, middle, and last name in big letter. Yeah, with a picture (laughs) of me on there. Because when you're a bartender. And you work at Dram and Draft, you represent Dram and Draft and you represent that brand and you're helping to build that brand, but you're also building your own brand because you're not going to work there forever. Maybe you want to open your own place one day. Maybe you're going to move to another city or another state and work somewhere else, but build your reputation while you're doing it. And when you go for a job, 
bring a copy of the menu and be like, boom, that's my drink yeah. with my name on it. How do you feel about restaurants who take the creations of their staff and spin it off as their own creations? Have you seen that? I know it can cause issues sometimes where like, you know, there's a pastry chef or an executive chef that comes up with a dish and then the, the, the owner, or maybe it's a chef de cuisine that comes up with the dish and the owner would be like, go to a magazine and be like, look at this dish. And like, they'll own it like publicly. Yeah. I, I just, I think an important part of, uh, feels very corporate. <laughs> not organized but corporate uh no i think an important part of being a leader is sharing credit with people and giving credit where credit's due that's how you build a team and you build a loyal team and you build a passionate team people need to be seen yes and and yeah everyone wants praise and, and credit and i just i don't know feels like plagiarism right. you know taking credit for somebody else's work it's right. it doesn't feel right i do like to talk about technology uh, i feel like as we move into the future, technology is not going to be an option. It's a must. You need to start leveraging it in your business for systems and processes, organization. Have you guys implemented technology? Have you, have you started leaning more on technology as you scale? Yeah, I think we, we have more, yes, more platforms, more organizational uh, tools that are part of tech. I think, I don't know. I, I, I don't think we're going like hardcore in that direction, um, but it is part of the organizational what is your tech stack? Say it again. What is your tech stack? So our it's tech like, stack. So we have we have um, a great accounting software. Uh, we have a company that that does it every week. So we have um, against our KPIs, you know, all our expenses, our sales, everything, and so that that part's very good. We use Toast, so we integrate that with a lot of things, and you know. Like being able to take an order at a table doesn't seem that high tech anymore, but that's right. that's yeah, kind of right. nice. You know, that was not. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you know you had to, no more bottlenecks of the the register. That's right. right. That's right. So so that's you know some tech with the with with and people can pay their bill at the you know at the their table and you don't have to come back again. Um, so there's there's tech there. And then we we use a company that that measures uh bar metrics that measures every you know what thousands of an ounce right yeah and 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 those guys are great and and so that i, I would consider that tech that we can look right. every two weeks and go oh we're you know 1.6 percent variance fabulous tech. why is it better to outsource that than do that in house well you know it, it may or may not be as we you know keep growing i mean there there, there may be a time where that needs to be an in-house person i don't know but if for for operators out there, anybody listening to this, absolutely, if you're selling liquor, and I tell this to people, uh, if you're selling liquor, you need to have it counted as a – so it has to be somebody outside of the restaurant. It can't be the GM. It can't be the head bartender. There is somebody stealing from you. They yeah. might be the one pulling Let them right. down. Exactly. It. So it's, it's, it's got to be somebody outside of, of – it doesn't have to necessarily be outside the organization, but it needs to be off-site. And, and if you're not counting your liquor and you sell liquor, you, you, know, you, you really don't – have a, a business. I mean, you if that's a, where you're making your profit, you got to make sure that it's tight. Yeah. yeah. And it's just too easy to lose track of it if you're not tracking it. Right. And, and if you're going to put it on yourself, which I think at some point in time when we first opened, maybe I envisioned myself doing that. It's just a lot of time and a lot of commitment. And if you miss one, then you throw off the whole system. And for us, we have tons of bottles. So it's hours and hours and hours. You know, I, I'm glad I never tried to put that on myself. I'm glad we outsourced it from the beginning because it's done. It's precise. They do it better than me, right? They do it better than so me. They have more practice. Yeah, yeah it's, it's their, their speciality, yeah. right? So uh, let them do it and give you the reports. The accounting software, do you know the name? 
Cirrus. Cirrus. Yeah. Is it just a general ledger? Does it? Uh, it's a company out of Maryland that um, Bob Frankis actually owns a. Uh, how many restaurants does he own in Maryland? Uh, you know, ten maybe thirty. Oh, I don't because they have a couple I, different many. brands. Yes, double digit restaurants, um, and they kind of developed this company and the software to be restaurant and bar specific. So they can dial into our numbers better than a, a general accountant or a general bookkeeper that doesn't understand, you know, uh, is, the different line yeah. items on our... First our, time mentioned on the show, is that Cirrus, S-I-R-U-S or C-I-R-U-S? C-I-R-R-U-S. C-I-R-R-U-S. And they're accountants that own restaurants, not restaurant oh, guys trying to be accountants. Yeah, they had... He was an accountant for a restaurant. I forget the exact story, but basically he bought it because the guy was not making money, but Bob could see why he wasn't. He bought the restaurant from the guy and then, you know, made it profitable and then developed all this software around, a, you know, making it profitable. Interesting. Yeah. And we don't probably fully use them. They have yeah, know, a sure. lot of stuff. You know, it's just you like everything else. It's even down, like with Bar deep. Matrix. They'll do all kinds of other stuff. You know, we, we pretty much use them for the count. Got it. Um, and, and, of course, they have other services and things that you can take advantage of. But we've been hanging on. So let me say this. One of the neat things for us coming up, and I mean coming up like right now with Charlotte opening next week, we've been running two companies. You know, building five bars in 18 months is a whole company itself. Our, our district, Lentz, I said district, director of operations, Lentz, you know, he's opening Charlotte right now. He's there today, training staff. How much time has he got to spend with Cirrus or with, you know, Barmetrics or that or with kind of thing? the manager thing? in Raleigh or, <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, we're, we're hanging on to the tiger's tail. And Kevin and I are in, in multiple different directions. Plus, we have a liquor company that's got two new brands coming out uh, this this fall. So we, we've, we've got our hands full. Yeah. So there's one thing that keeps coming up, and I've been sitting on this question, but you put a lot of emphasis on communication as being key to your success. What is your what does the internal communication look like? You have a, a, a weekly meeting. Are you yeah. following a structure? Yeah. Is there like a did you get inspiration from a company that you use for communication? You know, I I think we have a a, a few standing meetings um, every week that I try never to miss. Every once in a while. I'm a no-show. Every <laughs> once in a while I show up and I'm not really there. But um, I don't know where the inspiration came from. It At some point in time, post-pandemic, with multiple locations open, I thought it was very important to have a weekly general manager meeting. So we have the all the managers talk to each other. We do have a structure for, for that. There are standard questions that we ask. Um, we give out all the new information for the week. We go over events. We go over any financial things. And then I thought it was just important to have them all talk to each other and share stories with each other. This happened this weekend. This is how we handled it. Then we can all talk and be like, great. Or we say, good job, but next time the best way to handle it is like this. Or someone else can say, oh, that happened to us once, and this is the best way to handle it. So get all that communication going. We well, have KD, uh, KD, yeah, KDIs. What's that? K- KPIs? Yeah, KPIs, sorry. Yeah, we go over all that. We go over their budget for the liquor. Um, reviews that have come in. Yeah, we go over reviews. Uh, and But this is, we try to keep it to a tight 60 minutes. Used to be easy. Yeah. There's more and more people more on that call on, now. Yeah, yeah so we we uh, we try to stick to the, the outline that we have for the meeting and not take up too many too much time for everybody, right? This is all just people's time even when they come in for their weekly uh training 
we're asking people to come in on their days off. So we try to keep it, you know, three hours is long. Yeah. We try to keep it to three hours max if something special is going on. So, um, yeah, and I don't know where the inspiration, there probably was some book or some inspiration that, that it's, triggered it's crucial that. to communicate, to yeah. have some kind of weekly, uh, like rhythm of, and yes. like, so I, I'm a huge fan right now of EOS, which is, it was first mentioned in the book Traction. I don't know if you guys heard the book Traction, Gino Wickman. No. Um, but they have a traction series of books, a traction library. Um, but in that book, they talked about EOS, which stands for the entrepreneurial operating system. And it's basically the framework for like energy and communication to flow. That's like the foundation that your your business is like built on. Uh, but they talk like a big part of that is, is the, the reoccurring meetings, like yeah. the annual meeting, the quarterly meeting and the weekly meeting and what's discussed in each one of those meetings mm-hmm. and how you start, you know, with the annual meeting being like, okay, here's our 10 year plan. You know, how do we get there? Uh, where do we have to be in five years to be closer to that 10 year plan. And where do we have to be in one year to be closer to our five year plan? And then you, you reverse engineer everything down to quarters. So then you I love that. Yeah. So now it's like, you call those the rocks, right? What are your quarterly rocks to get to that one year goal? And you essentially everybody in every different vertical has their own rocks. And then every week you're saying, what are you doing this week to get closer to your quarterly rock? And then, and then similar to what you do, they, they get everything out and then they solve the problems collectively. So mm-hmm. did you meet your goal? No. Why or why not? You solve the problem. You brainstorm it collectively, but like you're collectively moving together and growing. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a framework for communication, but it's also a framework for growth because the communication is constantly around growth and you, you cover KDIs. I call it the scorecard where you, you're measuring your, your growth essentially mm-hmm. like your, your performance, but what, what's, what's going through your mind? Um, I, I think that's great. I think that's a, another way to drill down deeper. I think that, oh, and I thought I figured out the inspiration for this, these weekly meetings because after that, we do, I do one-on-ones with each manager and that's, uh, throughout the week, you know, a 30 minute phone call one-on-one with the manager. How many managers do you have? Well, seven now. Um, yeah, it's a lot of time, but it's important. Um, and then, you know, Drew, we have a marketing meeting before the general manager meeting. Drew and Lentz and I have a catch up call before that. And Mondays um, are busy. (laughs) Mondays are a lot of phone time, but this, and Beyond that, with the employees, I try to, I'm probably about due for it now, every six months have a one-on-one with each, with each employee at each location. And wow. this comes from said Moses. Mm-hmm. So he said that and he... I, employees uh, only, right? No, uh, uh, LA, all oh, the, the oh, restaurant chain in LA. Pouring, Pouring with heart. heart. I've had go. him on the yes, show. Yes, yes, you have. Yeah. I, I listened to part of that He's podcast. become a dear he's, friend. He's amazing. Yeah. But with all of his locations, which is 30-something, 1,000-something, I don't know how many. It's a lot. It's over 30 for sure. He tries to make that much time for all of his employees. And I thought, well, if Sed can do it, then I can certainly do it. I don't have a, you know, a quarter is, of the amount of This is the transformation of, of the industry literally happening before our eyes. You know? And that's what happens when we can get people. Like, we can share stories and make an example of people and show people, look, they're doing it. If they can do it, you can do it. And we all get better because of it. And like, I, I really do think we're in this massive transformation as an industry right now. Uh, like you're seeing it happen where we're taking care of our people way better than ever before. Um, we're, we're taking into consideration wellness and balance yeah. way better than, than ever before. And now I think we're becoming better business people than ever before. And we're looking at what's going on. We're saying, why can't we give the same security to our employees 
that any other industry gives to their employees with like, you know, health benefits and right. time, pay time off and all this stuff. And what's going to have to happen is the consumer is going to have to pay for it, which I think is the hardest part because we've conditioned this consumer to think that the value of a, a night out is this when it really needs to be this so we can take care of our employees. What are your thoughts on that? We're, we're on that path. We have a, a January one goal of having both some type of health care option. It will not be full health insurance, but there's there's plans out there. The group, um, what do they call them? I forget. But we're working on that. And then I'm, we're working on uh, the 401k, which we would like to have. Um, and we, I think we will have. We have that standing by. We kind of put a lot of stuff on pause, like we're not even talking about or working on anything until after Charlotte's open. But when that happens, we can roll this out pretty quickly and get – I think it's important that, that anybody that's been with us for a number of years can go, yes, and I have this money I'm building up you know, for my retirement because if they start at 25, you know what that can do, right? right? So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, let them see that now instead of turning around at 40 – and going, wow, I wish I'd started saving 15 years ago. And so, um, and of course, health care and, 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 and all is very, very important. So, yes, we, we, we think by January 1, we have a whole initiative on both those. Yeah. And the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And we're at that point in the conversation where I'm curious, how do you think we should transform the industry? How do we collectively go into the future better than what we've done in the past? I don't know if, if I'm in a position to talk about the, transferring the whole industry. I think what I what I can do, and I say I, we can do, is make sure we're taking care of our people as best as we can and um, being an example to, to others. And that's about all. I, I'm not personally on a mission to go out and make sure, you know, that somebody else, you know, in Ohio is doing, you know, something better for their folks i it's enough to try and well you're do doing that doing. right now whether you're aware of it or not because people in ohio are listening to this and they're getting inspired by your story well they should read pouring with heart said does a better job yeah. than than we do yeah, it's a <laughs> that's book. a great book yeah. <laughs> so i recommend it to anybody yeah. who wants to take care of their folks and uh, i should probably look that up it's, it's is it zed how do you spell his name again? said c-e-d-d his his father was the famous uh stra- abstractionist painter Ed Moses, and he wanted to name after himself, but he didn't want another Ed out there, so he put a C on it. Said, <laughs> so we had Sid on. He's episode eight hundred and eighty-one. If yeah. you guys want to check out that episode, and um, it's a great episode. Na- thank you. He was awesome. Um, before we, did you want to answer that question? Oh, I was going to say, I think um, you know, beyond taking care of your employees financially and, and benefits and all of that, which is great. I, again, it comes down to people want to feel like they're part of something. Again, coming from said, you spend 15 minutes with a one-on-one with an employee and you can get so much more out of it. I've, I've talked to someone that started as a shy host and spent 15 minutes with them and be like, well, what do you want to do? You want to bartend? All right, we'll do bar smarts and then start tell the manager you want to start training behind the bar and what's stopping you? And right. you just talk through it and here we are right. six months later they're a badass bartender right. behind you're, the bar. You are not. You're so. I think this is a good time to pitch another episode I recorded recently with Christine Miles. Um, her, the name of her book is "What Is It Costing You Not to Listen," uh, and the whole idea behind that is 
what are you losing as a business owner if you don't open that channel of communication up? And if you're, if you like your employees will tell you exactly what they want, exactly where they want to be. And there's so much opportunity for overlap and to provide like to leverage strengths from your, your employees that you would have yeah. never known were there if you didn't take the time to listen. And if you don't listen, they'll tell you what they think you want to hear. And that will destroy you. <laughs> you want to hear the truth. You yeah. want to hear um, what they want, not what they think you want to hear. It's creating that win-win with situation with you and your, the employee and putting them on tracks yes. that, are, that are aligned with what they want. Um, and that is episode 989. It's an amazing book. And she was, she's, I'm trying to get her in the network. So I, I host Restaurant Unstoppable Network, which is a community of our listeners and our past guests where we kind of do like workshops and stuff together. And I'm trying, we're trying to get her scheduled right now and she's going to be amazing. But um, this has been a lot of fun, guys. We're at the end of the interview. We're actually three minutes over our time. So we, I want to respect your time getting you out of here. Before we do say goodbye, I do want to give you an opportunity to call somebody out. I really try to have this be what steers the ship of Restaurant Unstoppable. I don't want to be the one who decides who gets made an example of. I'd rather the industry decide. And success recognizes success. So who do, you, who do you think right now is somebody who's doing an amazing job, who is somebody that if there were a guest on the show, you'd be like, wow, I want to listen to what that person has to say. I want to hear about their career and what advice they have. Who's that person for you? We just did said. Which he would certainly be at the top of the list. And we uh, talked about Dave and Dave, right? And yeah. their book. Have you had uh, Have you DNA. had Jack McGarry on yet? Jack McGarry. That sounds super. Dead funny. Rabbit. Dead no, Rabbit. I haven't. But I'm he is great. He's become a, a, a very good friend of both Kevin and I, and we see him every time we're up in New York. And New now York, we right? get to see him in Austin. Right. So if you're in Austin at all, he's he's opening there right now. They were. I would I love just, to make that happen. He is. I, I can set up a, a, a joint please, text please. or something yeah he's he's great he doesn't speak very good english it's this irish thing that he you know so you'll have to put it on a on slow so is there that ai that like, like you know can like convert that into feel like some american english. irish punch in the face next time <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's a, that's an agreed shout out right oh yeah for sure and dead rabbit is uh, oh, my favorite bar in the world currently and um that's not me fanboying. I just love that place. And I've been there so many times over the years through COVID, after COVID, before COVID. It's just, it's a great place to have a pint of Guinness, a fancy cocktail. or, or And they were mentioned in the book. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Jack's in the book a lot. The, yeah. um, hospitality DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I just had dinner with a guy that I would love to know more about. So I wish you would interview him so that I could learn yes. about him. Uh, Jean Georges. Jean George, the yeah, another chef. Yeah. yeah, he he was. We uh, we I met him at Katana Kitchen, and Moss is great. I don't know if you've ever had him on. What a great uh, operation that is! And then we went over to Employees Only and had dinner, and he is a very interesting guy. But I didn't really realize how much he owned and how many places around the world until I looked him up later. And I'm like, man, I'd really like to know more about how he got started and what his story is. So yeah. so um. There's a, another name. Well, John George, look, I'm coming after you. Jack McGarry, I'm coming after you too as well. They're both in New York, so that's mm-hmm. makes it easy for me. Souther Teague is in New York oh, yeah, too. Souther Teague, Souther Teague yeah. from oh. Speakeasy. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, that's the other great. There's so many. He's I mean, Philip, too, Philip so. Duff, oh, uh, Dale DeGroff, Dale DeGroff. So we I love mean, Dale. I had Dale on the show. Oh. He's come down, and and that's it. You got to have. He's the king. Rainbow uh, Room, right? Yes, yes. And he just came out with a liquor, which um, we just got. We haven't even tried it yet. Kevin's got one of each, and I've got one of each at my house. I've got to bring Kevin his, um, and a and a, a Moro and an ap- aperitivo. aperitivo. 
and um, they're Degroff. They're named Degroff, and I, I think um, I think Degroff was mentioned in the book Drunk too. And that I looked that up. It's Drunk by um, Edward Slingerland. He's mentioned in every good book. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's an awesome book. You guys would love that book. I want to put it on my you. list. It's, it's like an anthropological approach to alcohol over time, and it's also fascinating because like anybody who's alive today. We see alcohol through the lens of a 21st century individual, and like distilled liquor is only like a 200 year old invention. When you think about it, it's like that's like in the big picture of alcohol and our relationship with alcohol, like yesterday. So like it's when like it's alcohol has such a transformative effect on society. It's crazy. But you would you guys would love that. It's a great book, and that's that's an awesome episode. So now is where I say if if we're we're listening to this and we are inspired by you, maybe we want to come join your team. What's the best way to connect? Um, Well, we have a website, Dramandraft dot com which is if you wanted to join the team i think there's a link on there yes. for that and there is massive growth happening right now there's opportunity in this organization yes and there is there is and then for me if uh the, i'm at drew barman on twitter uh, which i know a lot of people aren't active on twitter i am because i'm doing some web3 stuff and i'm at drew barman on instagram Got and then kevin is silent. not available on social not available <laughs> uh, yeah he is he's writing you it can off. find uh at Dram and Draft, right? For Instagram, is that right, Edie? Oh, they're location specific. I don't know. Search Dram and Draft on Instagram. You'll find <laughs> me. <laughs> and uh, now is when I say you guys, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me. I know it's a long interview. You guys are great. Um, I can't do what I do without people like you being so generous with your time and knowledge. And there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. It's our pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers. Thank you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guests today, Kevin and Drew, for coming on, sharing your inspiring story and uh, giving us some great life lessons and business advice. And a special thanks to David Domzalski and Dave Nitzel for helping me connect with all these amazing restaurateurs while I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And also special thanks to John Sealbinder, a future guest. He's going to be coming on soon uh, for letting us use his space, The Merchant, in Raleigh, North Carolina, to record these interviews. And we have so many awesome things coming your way at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. So as you know, I ha- as I've confessed, I had to let the network take a back seat so I could focus on what I do best, which is traveling the country, connecting with these amazing restaurateurs in person, in their restaurants to, to pay forward these lessons to you, my listeners. But now we have Callan Miola in the network as our community manager, and she is absolutely killing it, organizing the back end, getting these these workshops and these events going, and we want you to be a part of it. So right now we have two workshops scheduled in the near future. So I just mentioned Dave Domzalski and Dave Nitzel, the authors, co-authors, I should say, of Hospitality TNA. They are joining us in the network. They're episode 1009, if you did not catch that episode on Hospitality DNA. But we're going to be going deep into one of those chapters, all about aligning the guest ex- ex- expectation to the t- team motivations and your marketing strategy. One more time, aligning guest expectations, team motivations, and your marketing strategy with Dave Domzalski and Dave Nitzel. That's going to be August 7th at 4 p.m. in the network. And we also have, if you remember... Christine Miles. She was episode 989 and she wrote the book, What Is It Costing You Not to Listen? 
She's joining us on August 21st at 3.30 p.m. Eastern to talk about the recipe for making a lasting impact on your restaurant through listening. That was a very impactful episode. If you missed it, it's a it's a step-by-step process on how to become a better listener. She is going to be making herself available again August 21st to go deep into the subject of becoming better listeners. You owe it to yourself. There's It's such an important skill. So join the network now. When you join the network, head over to Restaurant Stoppable dot com slash whatever the episode number is find the link in the manner that is a 30-day trial so you can take part in these workshops at no cost to you we want you to be able to make these workshops uh, so use that link get 30-day access to the network rsvp to these workshops and you will not regret it and i can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this show possible thank you to jared parisi at sumadre podcast for your copyright in the editing Thank you to Callan Miola again for all of your work as our community manager at Restaurant Stoppable Network. And thank you to Anna Tazin with the good kind consulting for your operational and executive advice. We're taking this thing to the next level. And it's because of my team. I'm so grateful for them. That's it for today. Until next time. Peace out. <laughs>